they're spending time in the future. They're imagining what could be in the future. You know, whether that's the five to ten year in a, in a normal setting, or whether in a crisis it's actually moved up to be eighteen months out. But the first is to carve out some time to be able to go into a different learning mode, which is more of an exploration and vision versus operate and execute and and have a conversation. You know, it can be with information, with data, you know, trend lines. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show we've got Mark Johnson. Mark, thanks for making time. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. So um, for people that don't know, can you tell them about your consulting firm, InnoSight, and then about this new book coming out? Sure. So uh, Insight is a strategy and innovation uh, firm that uh, we exclu- exclusively focus on growth, growth and innovation, you know, through um, the strategic process. We, I co-founded the firm with Professor Clay Christensen at the Harvard Business School in uh, early 2000s. So we're just past 20 years of uh, uh, being, a, being a consulting firm that was acquired by Huron Consultant in, in uh, early 2017. Um, through the work of Innosite, you know, we started with Clay's work on the innovator's dilemma and disruptive innovation, but that quickly led us into realizing the ability to be proactive in disruption required being able to think in a longer-term strategic visionary way uh, and, you know, how do you uh, organize around the right strategic process to drive breakthrough innovation, but also the right leadership team behaviors and an organization to be able to, to support uh, how innovation teams need to be driven. So that led to really lead from the future, my book that's coming out in mid-April, where um, the, uh, the focus is really around integrating those disciplines of leadership strategy innovation um, to be able to uh, help companies and other institutions uh, stay ahead of the curve and, uh, and be able to plan for the long term. Uh, and long term is all relative, uh, including what, what we've been facing with the uh, COVID-19 crisis. But a plan for the longer-term horizon while also addressing the uh, immediate or short-term. Well, um, I I really want to spend a lot of time on the book here today. Um, But one thing I want to do just beforehand, you know, I think for anybody who's really seriously into innovation, you know, they'll they'll know Clayton Christensen. But for people who who don't know about your, you know, former professor and, and then business partner for years, can you help explain how he was like what a Michael Jordan of your world he was and and uh, for people who don't you know maybe don't have context for just what an influence he had on the space was well thanks for asking that Jess uh, and it's uh, I really appreciate it and it certainly makes sense not every everybody would would be familiar with clay but uh, it's a tender time as he he passed away um, the end of January uh, so uh, it's not been too long ago. But yes, he was a giant, um, and for me, he's still a giant of uh, of of uh, thinking not just about innovation and growth, and you know how to you know, how to think about you know how that and tied into strategy and into being an entrepreneur. But uh, he also had a way of you know thinking about life and principles, and uh, you know sort of tied his work 
around innovation, you know, which was predominant seminal work was The Innovator's Dilemma, which came out in the late 90s, but he tied it to life principles, and it culminated with a book called How Will You Measure Your Life, which came out around 2010, where it was the application of some of the principles of business, which could actually be, you know, how to go from helping companies actually to help individuals achieve better outcomes in their lives and and their relationships. Um, So Clay was uh, just a brilliant um, professor at Harvard Business School, um, but he was also an amazing, kind, and um, just a a talented human being of of great character um, who had such an influence on the business world with his theory of disruption and that it helped companies understand that uh, not all of their competitors came sort of from equal footing, that uh, that there were potential to be changed and literally disrupted by things that didn't seem too important at the time um, or too much of what seemed like a threat at the time. So he was transformative in the business world because of the lenses, uh, the frame that he gave so many companies. You know, the first example that, you know, really propelled him to fame, uh, you know, outside of what he wrote in his book was Intel Corporation and how he influenced Andy Grove, the CEO at the time in the late 90s, about how Intel could get disrupted by uh, lower end microprocessors. Um, so anyway, I could go on and on about Clay, but uh, he's been a huge influence, uh, you know, not only in, only in the business world, but in people's lives individually. And that certainly can attest for me. He, he changed my life, not just professionally, but personally um, by, by who he was as a human being. You know, I, I'm glad you brought up his book, The Hell You Measure Your Life. You know, I, Having been a fan of all those other books, I was excited to just see what the new one was, right? And I feel like it's like, <laughs> I don't know, I kept reading it and he's like, he's giving you this business case of how it's so silly when this corporation does things this way or that. And you're like, yeah, that's totally, that's such a good principle. I've really got to follow that. And then he finishes the chapter with how as an ambitious business person, you're probably messing up your own family by doing that at home. And it's like too late to disagree with the principal. And I'm like, dang it, I do want to be a better dad. I'm totally doing that with my kids. Uh, Anyways, I just, so many of the people I've, CEOs and friends that I've given that book to or recommended that book to have just uh, really, I don't know, they've come back to me and talked so much about kind of the quality of life changes it's had on them. and uh, it's, I don't know, I, I think it was great to come out from him who was just so respected already. And, uh, and so people who maybe who were a little single minded on ambition and money and stuff like that. Uh, I, anyways, I think that book did a lot of good in the world. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I put in the forward of, of, of my book, Lead from the Future, about, you know, my, it basically was a tribute, a dedication to what I called a true visionary, because, you know, as you're pointing out in how you measure your life, I mean, part of what he was trying to highlight is um, getting past the instant gratification, you know, of wealth or power to be able to, to look much longer term on the things that are really going to provide fulfillment. And, you know, it was just interesting how he used sort of some of his business frameworks 
that applied in in Innovative Dilemma, but but in subsequent books to life's lessons. And uh, I think that has just been a key message. Really, is this notion that that we can get subsumed in things that are of instant gratification or immediate term and uh, miss out and and really thinking through and and understanding what really matters most. And uh, we all, even though we've heard that before, we always can be reminded of it. And Clay had a way of reminding us of that in a very powerful way. You know, I think one, and we can move on from this, but one last thing there that uh, I, I think also because he lived those principles so much, it, it got extra airtime. You know, like as pe- as you hear people yeah. talk about him, he embodied those principles. I mean, like we were talking before the show about how this this whole podcast is a result of, you know, I had cold called him at Harvard about hosting a show just like this for Intel. And then Intel never did it. So I started my own. Right. But on that phone call, mm-hmm. I, you know, I cold call this super famous guy and he actually picks up on his Harvard office line and he was just patient with me. And I'm like, clearly some, you know, somebody he doesn't know who's hawking him on, you know, trying to pitch him on something. Right. And he was just calm and patient and, and uh, like very respectful to hear what I had to say. And, and didn't, you know, he wasn't bothered that somebody wanted to talk to him, you know, like I'm sure he was busy and had other things going on. And uh, so in my brief interaction and, you know, we had talked about how he uh, at church had gone to church with my aunt and he just spoke so kindly about her. She had passed away from cancer a few years earlier. And um, I think that like who he was, was an amplifier for the message of that. Would you, would you say it differently or do you agree? No, I, I completely agree. And I mean, the only thing I would sort of amplify or add to what you're saying to your experience with the phone call was um, every person he treated uh, the same and he gave his full attention and his time and he made you feel uh, that you really mattered and that he cared about you and was interested in what you had to say and that he, um, and that, and that he wanted to help, um, help in any way he could. He was a consummate teacher and uh, mentor and uh, for anybody and everybody that, that wanted to engage with him, there was no partiality. Um, and that's what I think truly made him amazing. And it didn't matter, you know, how busy he was. He had this amazing way of, of, of not ever seeming rushed, um, which I've always admired because I can't seem to, to uh, emulate that amazing part of his, of his being that, uh, that made so many people feel connected with him. Yeah. Well, I, I love it. And I love that we get to hear about your book. That's, you know, essentially the, the progression of the work you guys did for 20 years and, and to see where it's all gotten to. Um, one of the things that I wanted to start with though, is can you help people get, a you know, the word innovation is so overused um, and people have so many different definitions of it. Can you just for a minute, help people understand when you guys talk about transformative information, how that's different than incremental information, you know, what, how you define incremental innovation? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think. I mean, I think. By the way, you're spot on about innovation. It's a loaded term. Um, people use it uh, within companies and other places in a in a very generic way, and it pretty much means anything that 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 someone's working that's creative and trying to you know create change with a product or a process or so forth, but. To your point, I mean, I our experience has been that that companies, especially, have been doing innovation for a very long time. They've they've been in they've been working to continuously improve their products, 
Um, they've, you know, through the work of Six Sigma and Lean, you know, manufacturing have made process improvements, which are which are a fundamental form of innovation. Um, they've continued to improve products, whether they're, as I said, you know, whether they're small improvements or whether they're big step change improvements. You know, those those efforts have have happened, um, and I think you know many. Companies are are very very good at them, but yet say we need to become more innovative. And what they're really saying is they need to figure out ways to create uh, more breakthrough growth. You know, how do they how do they address uh, commoditization or shortfalls of other means in the core to get beyond their core? To create new markets or, you know, beginning to think about, well, you know, our business system or our business model might actually need to change to get into emerging markets. So over the years, that's what we found is the rub is that first and foremost, when companies and other institutions say we need to be more innovative, they're actually saying, you know, uh, kind of along the Monty Python uh my Monty Python quote, you know, now for something completely new and different, right? That they're really looking, as you said, for something transformative. And the nature of doing something transformative, which means going into a new market or and or creating a subsequent new business model to support that is a system change, is a big breakthrough innovation type effort, which is harder to achieve within companies because it's not only about the technology or you know actually creating the new product, but it but it affects the um, you know there's a much higher risk profile. It's different than what the core business and how it operates, and because the consequence of that, these things are a lot harder. But in a nutshell, I think you have to break down innovation between those things. And Clay talked about this a lot. Those things which sustain the core business, whether they're incremental or you know pretty big improvements, and those things that either disrupt the business or transform it. Meaning, you know, it's a completely different way to think about the market size and the margin requirements from a financial point of view, or it's in a new market in in a, in a way that it's going to take time to develop. Uh, so it's not going to do anything for you in the short term. A transformative innovation, but those kinds of things that either disrupt or transform need to be distinguished from the the core innovations that sustain and you know serve along the lines of existing customers uh, and without that distinction you won't manage both from the top as well as within innovation teams the the, the two different distinct times of efforts in the right way well uh, thanks for thanks for defining that um, you know to me this idea of like helping people think much broader. I feel like your book really addresses this idea of not being constrained by how things are. And, and really, like, you, you talk about this importance of, and I'm going to misquote you here, but essentially, like, leaving the current assumptions aside for a minute, and really going wide on how things could be and anticipating unmet future customer needs, and, and thinking more in terms of this future, this envisioned future together, but without all the tethers to how it works today. How would you say that better? Well, I, I would have to first compliment you, Jess. I think you said it very well. Um, I, I I might just add to it that um, the the future, you know, and it depends on the situation, but without having a disruption like COVID-19, which is going to affect, you know, which brings the point of inflection for a lot of businesses up way up or trend lines become steeper, but steeper. But outside of that, we had advised and we still advise, you know, to look out past the planning and forecasting horizon into the five to 10 year 
um, because there's just a richness of perspective that can be achieved around the way things can come together. And to your point, you, you have to let go of the way things are today, you know, the business models today, the, the way we make money today, the way we organize resources and processes, um, which inherent in all of that is to say we have an assumed business model. But in the future, in order to either continue to reinvent our core business in, when needs arises, which will over a longer term horizon, and you need to prepare for that now, or the growth in the core is insufficient to continue to sustain what what the business needs, um, then you have to go beyond the core to look at new growth. Both of those instances are best done by looking out into the future by envisioning um, more than just a vision statement, but literally what what could a business look like based on the unmet needs that uh, unmet customer or consumer needs that might occur based on what is happening with trends that are pushed out, you know, in the further horizon. And then how do you begin to imagine what business and capabilities would look like a, a, a portfolio? Well, yeah, can we, can we what is the core business? Yeah. Well, can we talk about Sorry. that? Because, <clears throat> Yeah. You know, I, I think about something you've said, and again, I'm sure I'm going to, well, this, you know, I lived in Edmonton during the Gretzky years. So I liked your, <laughs> I like mm -hmm. when you bring up the Gretzky skate to where the puck is going to be instead of where it is today. Right. Yeah. And it's like something like that is easy to say when you think about the people who are truly good at it, who, who you admire in their ability to, to really, um, get in the mindset and and really have some i don't know unique or or superior ability to envision where the puck is going to be whatever our industry is what you know whether we're government nonprofit for profit whatever when you think about the people who are superior at that what are they doing different than the rest of us well, first and foremost, Jeff, they're spending time. I mean, they're spending time in the future. They're imagining what could be in the future, you know, whether that's the five to 10 year in a, in a normal setting or whether in a crisis it's actually moved up to be 18 months out. But the first is to carve out some time to be able to go into a different learning mode, which is more of an exploration and vision versus operate and execute and and have a conversation. You know, it can be with information, with data, you know, trend lines and so forth, but have the right kind of conversation first and foremost, carve out the time. Um, uh, but unfortunately, most people are so busy operating and executing and dealing with budgets and business plans and, and forecasts that, are, you know, in, in the crises of the day that they never take the time and the space to say, you know, what, what could things look like, whatever the appropriate future time horizon needs to be. I mean, as a, as a well-understood example in general of success, but maybe not the specifics, when Steve Jobs came back to Apple in 2000, one of the first things he did, uh, sorry, he came back in 98, but then in 2000, what, one of the things he did that year was to get his team together and look out 10 years um, and, and address out 10 years based on what was happening at the time, which was, uh, you know, with the dot-com bubble and everything else. The, um, the commoditization of the computer. So he looked out 10 years to envision what could, what Apple had, what could that company become? And that led to the digital hub strategy and subsequently into all the different products like the iPod and iPhone and iPad and everything else that, that, that came out of that. But I would say first and foremost is how do you get people to just 
spend time in the future horizon and embrace it and talk about it and imagine what the environment could be like and what are the implications of that? And then how could you envision the business and what it looks like more than just the vision statement? Well, you know, as you say that, it does make me think this idea of like, no wonder someone would be better at it. If they systematically prioritized having time for that on their schedule instead of like, if I have some spare time sometime, which no one will ever have, right? Um, yeah. You know, if, if and I know we're, we're about, we're closing in on time for part one of the episode here, but um, if you could go a little more in depth here on that Steve Jobs example, I think that context really helps people. Um, <clears throat> can you talk about how, you know, the, you know, the big cheese at Gateway had basically capitulated that, that, you know, computers were just going to become a commodity and, and so much of if people had stayed in the present could have led down a different path. But this idea of jobs looking at, you know, the Rio and all these things going on, um, you know, by, by really getting into that space and having the team come with him and getting that unified, how, how they were able to think differently and, and obviously did something so different. Oh, for sure. Um, you know, just, I just say that, Exactly what you said, you know, the CEO of Gateway, others were talking about, you know, that the computer, the personal computer was becoming a commodity and wasn't coming back. Steve Jobs used his team, took with him his team to look out, you know, and it's like I said, it was around 2000. He looked out to 2010 really to kind of get out of the noise of all the things that were happening then and be able to look in the future and say, you know, again, what is the art of the possible? What what could be as opposed to what is and what should be back to the skate, you know, to the puck analogy. It's not only Gretzky saying skate to where the puck is going, but how could we shape where the puck ultimately goes? And so with Jobs and his team of, you know, 100 top lieutenants, um, they were able to look out that 10 years and come up with basically saying, what if the what if the computer was in the, was the central hub of enabling all of these other uh, devices at, you know that's at the time you know uh, CD players and uh, camcord recorders camcorders and things like that and be able to say what if we uh, own the microprocessing power and we wrote elegant software so that these different devices didn't have to have the you didn't have to be overloaded with the microprocessor in them. They could be much more elegant in there as consumer devices. So he created an adjacency move, uh, but that could only be done by talking about what could be, not incrementing off of today, right? Because that's part of the beauty of looking in the future and looking in a future back way is to be able to clean sheet the way that future looks like, to be able to think systematically, to be able to go past even industry boundaries. Um, it's really a lot is related to it as what's been termed design thinking um, by being able to say what could be uh, – how do we think about this systematically and then work it from from that future back? Because Steve Jobs working it from the future back then started with the iPod, uh, then the then the iTunes store, then the iPhone and then the iPad. Um, so so I think that's just a classic example of being able to get out of the uh, paradigm of today by being able to put yourself out far enough, to be able to imagine something completely different. I, I love that. You know, um, I guess maybe here's a final question. I mean, with with you guys and InnoSight, I mean, basically being one of the top, if not the top innovation consultancy in the world, you get interviewed, 
everybody wants your time and stuff. Um, maybe for a final question for part one, what's a question that people don't ask enough? What's a question that you wish people would ask more? Um, if we don't, if, if we don't look out, um, they, they don't ask enough the question of by looking and, and they don't ask this question enough because they don't think to look, you know, look out into their future enough. But what are they missing in terms of opportunity? Right. There's all this worry about, like, you know, if we don't hunker down, you know, somebody's going to disrupt us or, you know, we've got to be able to just try to keep pushing the business as far as we can. But they don't ask what is the opportunity cost of all of those uh, continued resources being poured into their core businesses. Uh, what is what are they missing in terms of what could be a, just a grand opportunity? Had they spent at least a little bit of those resources and time uh, beginning to imagine what could be opportunity. So it's not just about the threat, and and I think and it's not just about threat assessment. It's also about um, what are the opportunities that could be in our horizon, and how do we seize upon them? There's not enough of that question being asked. Uh, it, it, it's only opportunity in the context of what we have today. Uh, I mean, clearly what Steve Jobs did with this digital hub and then, of course, those subsequent consumer products um, after that uh, transformed their business and had really – you wouldn't have been able to extrapolate it off of, 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 of their personal computer. Um, you wouldn't have been able to think as expansively about the opportunity had you just – continued to do traditional strategic planning um, and, and traditional planning and budgeting and forecasting. Well, right. Without understanding this framework, who would have guessed them, you know, largest market cap in the world company, however many years later, right? Um, well, listen, yeah, everybody, absolutely. Uh, please go to futurebackleadership.com or go straight to Amazon and check out Mark's new book, Lead from the Future. Um, I'm a huge fan of his book, Dual Transformation, and um, really looking forward to also reading uh, Seizing the White Space. But um, Lead from the Future, Amazon, futurebackleadership.com, or, uh, or just reach out to him at um, going to the InnoSight website, which is InnoSight.com, I-N-N-O-S-I-G-H-T. Uh, Mark, anywhere else that's good for them to connect, LinkedIn or something like that? Um, yes, absolutely. Keep the conversation going with LinkedIn and uh, can always, like you said, go to InnoSight, uh, check out us as a firm and our, our focus on helping companies large and, and small own their future. Great. Well, everybody, uh, please tune back into part two. We're going to keep asking Mark about uh, all this work over the last 20 years. Thanks.